This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. I must apologize at the onset for some untoward combination of jet lag and, I surmise, something I must have picked up on the last jet ride home. As we all know, the airlines don't want to spend a lot of money to exchange the air more than necessary, so you're generally breathing the same atmosphere as all the other 100 and some odd or 200 and some odd or maybe 300, I don't know, some odd people that are stuck inside the same aluminum can. So that's what I think this is. Uh, The voice is not at its best, as you can tell, but I will do the best I can to talk about uh, what is taken place in the last few weeks, which was a trip to Europe. At any rate, I'm pleased to report that a trip to the Azores, from which part of my family originated, my father's side, actually, both my grandfather and my grandmother were Azorians. So there was a bit of seeking out the homeland and perhaps some relatives. I I did talk to a few relatives, which I'll tell you about a little bit later. Um, I moved on from there to Lisbon. A fine European capital, if there ever was one, Uh, followed by trips to southern Spain, in particular Seville and Granada, after which uh, my nephew and I winged our way home from Madrid to Brooklyn, where we um, participated in the marriage of his brother slash my other nephew. The identity of this individual should not remain secret, and that I'm referring to former general manager of KDVS, Stephen Valentino, who last Sunday got hitched to his fiancée, Connor Yates. It's also worthy of note that Stephen is also connected to KZFR, being that he was, in high school, a DJ there as well. He has thus gone from KZFR in high school to KDVS in college to currently WNYC in New York, where he is one of the producers of the New Yorker Radio Hour. And he was, last Sunday, one half of a very happy pair. It was a great pleasure to have attended that ceremony. Now, given the rather shaky status of my voice and the fact that I am very definitely jet-lagged, we may have to cut back the usual rapid-fire pace of Radio Parallax today and do a rather meandering look back at the past several weeks. Not just the travel, but I think in this case also some of the books that got consumed uh, during the trip. It's always... A lot of fun to um, throw a bunch of books in your backpack and plow through them as you're traveling. At least, I find it to be so. So what the hell? Let me enumerate them. I started out with John Steinbeck's Cannery Row, which I thought would be somewhat appropriate, being that we were going to be spending a lot of time in fishing country. And uh, Cannery Row down in Monterey, although it's now a tourist attraction, was at one point back in the 1930s a major center for the canning of fish. We talked on this program many years ago about um, looking into the mysterious or reportedly mysterious disappearance of all the fish. But uh, we kind of got bogged down in the science of the difference between the sardines and the anchovies and how one would dominate at one time, the other would dominate at other times, yada yada. We had a sneaking suspicion that the reason that the fish populations crashed was the profound overfishing that took place with basically floating factory processing ships off the coast that would 
gather these fish in in huge numbers and can them. In that same vein, the second book consumed on this sojourn was Cod, the award-winning book by Mark Kurlansky. Turns out the story of Cod was quite important to all sorts of things throughout history, among them the American Revolution. I thought this might be an excellent choice for reading material, being that we were going to Spain and Portugal, where to this day, bocalhau, or dried cod, is, well, if not a staple, certainly a favorite. It's no longer a staple because, gee, (laughs) familiar theme here, it apparently uh, got majorly overfished. When I was in high school, the Grand Banks off of Newfoundland were described as the world's most productive fishery, and yet, despite that abundance of fish resources, the population was worked to death, literally. It may make a comeback, there's debate as to whether it can, but uh, nobody seems to know, which is quite a frightening thing, and I don't know, worth a word or two in a moment. But I'm going through the books one by one, I guess, so I guess I'll mention the third one I hit was... Carrie Fisher's Postcards from the Edge. Ms. Fisher, of course, passed away some months back, and I'd heard good things about this book and a lot of her other writing, as well as the one-man show she put on. And and I have to say, I was impressed with her writing ability. She was a very talented lady. I got to a fourth book as well. My nephew and Chico resident Kevin brought along House of Bush, House of Saud by Craig Unger, was a bestseller back in about 2004, but somehow I never got around to reading it, and I'm glad I corrected that deficit because it is a barn burner, a most interesting tome. And of course, I had to laugh over having just gotten through the book and then noticed on the TV screens that uh, our current president, Donald Trump, was now visiting the House of Saud over in Saudi Arabia, which may be the only country I can think of on earth that is named after a family. And I ended off the book reading, and I ended off my book reading extravaganza with a volume that has not yet made it to print. I had a manuscript copy of it. For that reason, perhaps I shouldn't maybe say that much about it, except to note that to a startling degree, the author has explained what happened in the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And by explaining what happened, I don't mean solving the great mystery of, you know, who was behind it but rather what actually happened on that day in Dealey Plaza. The author, Josiah Thompson, has used scientific evidence to explain in exquisite detail what happened to the late 35th president. It's not a very nice story, and we're not going to go into that one today. But the other four books I think I'll say a little bit about as we go along. But let us return back to the journey itself, which involved a flight from San Francisco to the Azores, There is quite a significant Azorean population in New England. There's also one in the Bay Area as well. But New England has such a large number that it offers regular flights to the archipelago, meaning you don't have to go through London or Lisbon, but can fly directly from Boston to the island of São Miguel, which we did. I had not memorized the geography of the archipelago until I was uh, en route and had to note that They're rather small islands. The largest island of the group, which is San Miguel, it has, I think, well over half the population of the entire grouping of islands. And I think even their main city, Ponta Delgada, has something approximating half the population of the islands. This largest of Azores islands is only half the size of Kauai, which is the fourth largest of the Hawaiian chain. I think a good description of the islands came from a uh, an airbase man who was, uh, 
I was chatting up on the island of Terceda, and he said, if Ireland and Hawaii got together and had a kid, <laughs> it would probably be the Azores, which is uh, not a half-bad description. When uh, both my mother and father visited these islands uh, 20 years ago, along with the uh, newly married Mr. Valentino, who was, I guess, then about age 12, or my dad noting that these are small islands and the, the great epic natural wonders they may have are not necessarily as impressive as they might be. I was reminded of this uh, with, an, I think, no small amount of chuckling when Kevin and I drove up to see the green and blue lakes on the left side of this island. They somehow go by the name of Sete Cidades, which means seven cities, and, and I have no idea what they're referring to. There's one little town, not seven cities. In spite of the fact there's supposed to be a blue lake and a green lake, which my father expressed grave doubts about a couple of decades back, in fact, the two lakes do look a lot more similar than different. And since, as we watched, a kayaker paddled from the blue lake into the green lake, the unresolved question became, how can they be two different lakes if you can paddle from one directly into the other one? Oh, not to say it's not a pretty setting. It, it very definitely is. But I don't know that it was, you know, the attraction of the islands. My pick for that I'll mention in a minute. We drove around San Miguel, had a grand time. Went to one spot where there are hot springs, where the enterprising locals um, have learned to bury the food into the hot ground and let it do the cooking. As we watched near the town of Fernas, they they pulled out some of these uh, large cooking containers. Unfortunately, we weren't sure where they were serving them up and didn't actually get any volcanically cooked food during our stay, which is, is too bad. But that means, I guess, I have to go back. The food was quite good. It was quite good uh, on our first island, the second island, third island, and in Lisbon. But did note something with a little bit of irony, which is that the Portuguese don't seem to go for a lot of spices. My nephew, Kevin, noted that they don't even give us pepper. And it was true. You generally had salt on the table, but not pepper, let alone more exotic spices. The irony of this comes from the fact, of course, that it was Portugal that became a great sea power because it wanted to find a way to sail around Africa and get to India and thus the spice trade, thereby cutting out the Muslim middlemen that made um, the prices of spices so high in Western Europe, being the furthest down the uh, supply chain. The Portuguese were, of course, quite successful in this endeavor, courtesy of Vasco da Gama, who finally completed the journey from Portugal to India and thus opened up trade to the east. But before he could do that, the government of Spain leapfrogged ahead of Portugal in terms of uh, discoveries of uh, routes to the Indies. Well, that's misleading, isn't it? Well, there's this guy named Columbus. He was married to a Portuguese Jewish woman, and he thought he had figured out a new geography of the world. He thought the world was a lot smaller than everybody else did. Aristophanes, I guess back in like, what, 300 B.C., something like that, accurately measured the size of the earth. He was a hair too small, as, as I recall, but he got, he got it close to being right at 25,000 miles. Columbus thought that was way too big. The earth, he said, was, you know, several thousand miles smaller than that in its circumference something like 18,000. Therefore, if one sailed west from Portugal, you were sure to land in, in India after just sailing maybe three or 4,000 miles. If you will inspect the globe, dear listener, you can appreciate how far off he was 
having failed to take into account the entire Pacific Ocean. Anyway, Columbus showed up at the court of King Joao, who had all the world's best geographers working on map making for the purpose of getting around the coast of Africa, showed up and said, you know, I got this great idea. Give me a couple of ships and I'm going to be able to sail west to India. The king asked his geographers, does this, does this Italian know what he's talking about? And the clear verdict came back, no, he does not. So it was that Portugal gave Christopher Columbus a pass. And I think we'll return to the Columbus story a little bit later in the narrative. But even though the Portuguese have been ridiculed for the fact that they did not fund Columbus, the fact of the matter is and was that they knew what they were talking about and Columbus didn't. But of course, as always in life, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. At any rate, after three lovely days on uh, the island of São Miguel, we flew to Terceira, the island from which my grandfather left at age 10, which I believe would be in 1913. He left Terceira, came to Newark, California. Some years later, met and married my grandmother, and thus allowed me to come into being, at least through my dad. Terceira is a lovely, if small, island. Its claim to fame is that, unlike the rest of Portugal, which for a 60-year period was basically made a subsidiary state of Spain, when the Spanish ships sailed into the harbor to take Terceira, an enterprising and tough local farm woman let her bulls loose. And supposedly the marauding bulls drove the Spaniards back to their ships. At least that's how they tell it. And no, we don't have any explanation here at Radio Parallax for how it is that the Spanish failed to bring any Toreadors along. At any rate, um, in celebration of this, uh, this supposedly driving away of the Spaniards by bulls, the town of Angra do Heroismo every year lets out a bunch of bulls and then has them interact with the populace. Of course, the populace generally means the local young men. I did not observe a single female opting to run around with bulls. No, I think that's reserved for young males in combination with an excess of testosterone and probably the local agua ardente, which translates in English roughly as firewater. Hearing about this event, Kevin and I did turn out for it. And um, according to the, the American from the airbase, who I had a nice chat with, the um, people of Angra will bring out four bulls, a young one, an old one, a strong one, and a mean one. Not sure if that was correct, but I do know that when they brought out the second bull, he was observed to have only one horn on his left side, which frankly made it easy for the local, um, you know, layabouts to uh, to dodge by just you know moving right. Turned out the airbase guy was from Texas and was quite a cattleman, and I asked him, you know, did you, do you suppose he lost that horn in the pen? He says, no, no, he'd be bleeding like stink right now, which made me really wonder why it is they had if they're going to select four bulls, they couldn't find a second bull with two horns. Anyway, I first heard this story about uh, the, the bull episode in, in a wonderful restaurant in the town of Angra. Probably the most entertaining waitress ever was our, our hostess, and, and the food was consistently, it was so good that, while well, we ate there every single day. Not all of our meals, but we did go there every single day because it was just so bloody good. 
the name of the town, I guess, translates as, you know, harbor of, of the heroes or the harbor of heroism. I asked the waitress, well, in that case, who are the heroes? She put her hands on her hips, eyed me with a steely glance and said, well, we are, of course. Being a much smaller island, Tercera had fewer natural wonders than did Sao Miguel. Don't get me wrong, it's a very pleasant little island. But I sort of got the idea why it was my grandpa took a look around and thought America might be a better option for him. Of course, things have changed somewhat. I did notice at one point as we were driving around a guy who looked like um, someone working the fields, as I imagine my grandfather did as a boy. He was wearing rubber boots that came halfway up to his knees, and he had a fair amount of mud on those boots as he was tromping around. But unlike my grandfather of the early 20th century, this guy was on a cell phone. Now, it turned out on this island of Tercera, there is a hotel that is uh, run by cousins of mine. I believe they descended from the brother of my grandpa's mom, I guess. Um, I'm not very good at genealogy. At any rate, they're cousins. We stayed in their hotel, enjoyed meeting them very much, and I made a point to say that I would like to meet Francisco, the dean of the family, age 89, who uh, was so nice to my folks when they visited. Spent a very pleasant hour or so chatting with Francisco at his house. At more than one moment in the conversation, I looked over at Francisco and absolutely saw the face of my father looking back at me. And it wasn't an optical illusion. The family resemblance definitely was there. It was sort of funny. When we first arrived at the airport, I inquired about him. And the guys in the airport were like, oh, yeah, Francisco, yeah, he's around. You got the feeling that almost everybody knows almost everybody on an island that small, which uh, on the one hand is pretty cool. And on the other hand, I imagine could be at times pretty suffocating. We left Terceira and moved on to San George after that, which is even smaller. San George is a pencil of a volcanic island with, with high cliffs. I believe the entire population of the island is under 9,000. My travel agent had been unable to book uh, a hotel, he said, and so he put us up in what he could find, which turned out to be the most spectacular spot of the entire trip. It was a, a condominium among a development of condominiums that had not yet sold, and therefore they were using the rooms as hotel rooms. The view out uh, out the front door, basically, the glass sliding door of the town of Velas off to the right and the island of Pico off to the left were quite something. Now, it turned out my grandmother's family came from that island, although my grandmother was born in the United States, but my great-grandpa left San George in, well... I'm not sure. My guess is 1900, give or take a few years. The family name was Swarish. So on the island, I asked people where there were Swarishes. guy in my hotel said, oh, yeah, Ursulina. He pointed to a poster behind us of a guy that takes out people for deep sea fishing and said, that guy there, referring to the guy holding a large tuna, he's a Swarish. And although I did ask around a few times, I never actually met one which was kind of too bad. But, hold the phone, let me fast forward to Brooklyn, New York, at the end of the trip. Stephen Valentino, my nephew, informed me that there would be a Suarez in attendance. He was from Portugal. He was, in fact, one of Portugal's news correspondents whose job it was to cover the beat of New York City. Stephen said when he met him, I guess a year or two ago, and found out what his last name was, he said, well, yeah, my great-grandma was a Suarez, and... 
Stephen said that when he met this gentleman and found out that his last name was Suarez, he said, well, geez, my, my great-grandmother had that last name. Which island are you from? And he said, Saint-Georges. Meaning it's pretty likely that uh, this guy was a distant, distant cousin. I observed him at the wedding. In fact, I, I picked the guy out of the crowd and walked over and said, is that the guy? And Stephen said, yeah, that, that's him. So I just, yeah, I walked over and said, hi, you know, I, Alex, I think I'm your cousin. We, we both sort of laughed over it, but I'm, I'm pretty, pretty sure he was. And I, when I mentioned to him that I heard, I said, I just was in Saint-Georges last week. And he thought that was pretty interesting. I said, I, I asked about the Schwartzes, and they told me the family was down in Ursulina. And he said, no, those are the wrong ones. So I, I gather there's two families with that name on this small island, and, and I'm probably related to the one he is a part of. He, he assumes so, and I do too. It's a small world. Now, by about this point, I had finished the book on cod and was a little bit curious about eating some cod, uh, although uh, I ordered some fish and chips in Boston during the layover and thought, oh, this is cod. And I have to confess, I've never really had a taste for it. The cod book pointed out that because it was such a cheap source of protein, it basically fed the slaves in Brazil. And yes, down in the Caribbean and in Brazil, they still really do like their bacalhau or dried cod, but... Speaking about the discovery of America, we have to insert the cod tail into it. Turns out the Basques of northern Spain had discovered this incredible source of fish, which they were marketing to uh, Iberia and the rest of Europe, and they were rather closed-mouthed about where they were getting it. Now, I think it's pretty well established in, in, in everybody's mind that Christopher Columbus was the, the guy that linked up the old world to the new world because he was not shy about talking about what he discovered. The Vikings, of course had gotten to Canada a half millennium before that. But they encountered some opposition from the locals, which drove them away, and their settlements did not really last, and they weren't that interested in telling Europe all about it. So it was that the Vikings may have discovered North America, but, well, nobody knows about it. But apparently, not just the Vikings got over to, uh, to the New World, but so did the Basques. According to the book on Cod by... Mr. Karlansky, to the glee of the British press, a letter has recently been discovered, sent to Christopher Columbus by the merchants in Bristol, during which time Columbus was taking bows for his discovery of America. The Bristol merchants alleged that he knew perfectly well that they had been to America already. Evidently, when Jacques Cartier, quote-unquote, discovered the mouth of the St. Lawrence River and planted his cross, claiming the Gaspé Peninsula for France, um, he did note the presence of about a 1,000 Basque fishing vessels. Keep in mind, the Basques have been bringing whale meat to Europe for centuries, and apparently they've been um, feeding these voyages on codfish in epic numbers, and which they then in turn marketed to the rest of Europe. So there you have it. Apparently, cod fishermen discovered America and then managed to keep it secret. I had a rather lively discussion with uh, a regular Radio Parallax contributor, a while back, where uh, he made the statement that he thought that conspiracies pretty much, you know, generally get discovered. I'd have to point out that I, I think the case of the Basque fishermen demonstrates the opposite. A conspiracy, even a vast conspiracy involving hundreds, if not thousands of, of fishing boats, um, you know, might hold together if uh, it's in someone's interest to stay mum. This same correspondent did point out to me a couple days ago that he 
visited the Monterey Aquarium recently and said that it has made some marvelous improvements and is worth a fresh look. I'm probably going to take him up on that. While I'm down there, I'm going to take another look at uh, researching the character of Doc from Canary Row. The Monterey people, I, I don't think, cared too much for Mr. Steinbeck when he was writing his book uh, chronicling uh, all these tales of the dirtbags of, of the Monterey Peninsula. Oh, not that everybody in a Steinbeck novel is a dirtbag. I mean, far from it. But he certainly liked telling tales of, um, shall we say, the lower socioeconomic classes and people who were, um, well, I guess you say societal misfits. At any rate, back to San George, The island of Pico has a regular ferry going over to it, and had we timed it better, I would have loved to have gone over to Pico. There was a couple from Austria staying at our condo-slash-hotel who was planning to make the trip, after which they were going to climb the volcano, which is the tallest peak in Portugal, something like 8,500 feet high. Quite impressive, as viewed from São Jorge and from the island of Fayal, which is also near at hand. I was somewhat horrified, however, when I noted that, you know, in the future I might like to go over and climb Pico. Stephen said, oh, yeah, when we went there, we drove to the top. Someone incredulous, I said, there's a road all the way to the top? He said, oh, yeah, they took us up there and showed us the lake. It was kind of like more like a cow pond. I have to admit, I would have hated to have embarked upon a long, arduous hike up the sides of the volcano, only to arrive at the top and then see a couple of guys driving up and popping out of a Volkswagen Golf. Before embarking on this trip, my travel agent asked if I would prefer to drive a car with a stick, and I said, absolutely, every time, yes. He said, well, that is a problem, of course, because Americans go over there and they want an automatic, and a lot of times they're not available. I think on little meandering, winding roads sometimes, uh, you just want to have that extra security of a manual transmission. But I would note that the diesel that we had on the island of Saint-Georges would die when you put it in neutral to coast down the hill. Or I guess it didn't literally die when coasting on the hill, but it kept dying on us. Only it was a planned kind of dying. It wasn't dying indiscriminately. It wasn't dying from malfunctioning. It was dying because it was programmed to do so. I guess this gets better mileage out of the car. I don't know. We couldn't figure it out. It was danged annoying. But in driving our little vehicle around the island, uh, two interesting things happened. One was that we were not able to go all the way to the southern tip of the island because... The fog closed in, and I mean serious, serious fog. As someone who grew up in the Bay Area with its notorious fogs and lived many decades in the Central Valley, also noted for its Thule fog, I would say that I could be described as an old hand at dealing with fog, but man, this one was world class. To the point where on these narrow islands, with some guys driving a little faster than they ought to, we decided we're going to cut this a little bit short and turn around. But if losing on that one, we made it up on the horse as we drove around the more northern part of the island. This incredibly beautiful white horse tracked us as we drove by. He moved his head from right to left as if he was watching us drive by, which which clearly he was. So on the way back, as he was apparently waiting for us and looking at us, he started walking across the paddock in our direction, so naturally we pulled the car over and gave him what we had, which I think in this case was some sweet bread and potato chips, which he enjoyed very much. We resolved to bring him an apple the next day, which we did. I sort of wondered in the back of my mind, since my great-grandpa came from this island, whether this horse's great-great-great-grandpa might not have been owned by my family. I wonder. At any rate, it was from there to the mainland of Iberia, and might be a good time to take a break, so let's do that. I'm Douglas Everett 
froggy voice and all, and you are listening to Radio Parallax. A horse is a horse, of course, of course, and no one can talk to a horse, of course, that is, of course, unless the horse is the famous Mr. Ed. Go right to the source and ask the horse, he'll give you the answer that you...